Dory 1, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. If you have known me for a little while, personally, you know that I love airplanes. And today's guest is an airplane pilot for the Coast Guard, Luke Zittman. Luke loves Jesus and seeks to live a content and generous life with a goal of acting with integrity, intentionality, and maturity. He has spent the best seven years of his life married to his awesome wife, Mandy. Luke entered military service at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy with the class of 2009, where he studied civil engineering, and upon graduation, went on to the Naval Flight Training Academy. He is currently on an aircraft commander and a flight examiner on the HC-144 Ocean Century Station on the Gulf Coast. Luke and Mandy left felt called to foster care, and since PCSing to their current duty station in 2015, have welcomed over a dozen permanent placement cases into their home, as well as provided for emergency and respite care for dozens more children in their foster system. At the time of this recording, they have three kids sitting, three kids siblings sitting in their family, a teenage girl and two young brothers. Luke, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this interview. It's been looking forward to when I first connected with you over two months ago, and it's been uh, it's your never sense to get this recorded for you. Yeah, same here. Go, to, go ahead and describe a little bit more about what your family looks like and any gaps in that intro you want to add for us. Yeah, so uh, like you said, I've uh, been married for about seven years, been fostering for four um, at the beginning of that experience. Um, we, had, we had just PCS to our current uh, station and discussed having kids, and fostering came up as, as kind of the, the – uh, at the end of a lot of kind of reasoning between my wife and I, that that was what we were going to pursue. Um, and when we first got involved in it, it was kind of fast and furious. We had a lot of placements like very quickly, uh, kind of trial by fire, if you will. Um, and the, you know, it was like the ready or not here I come kind of parenting experience that you know, I think many people have experienced. Here they are three uh, years old. Go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. The first, we got two infants the first day, one of them was a cocaine addict and, uh, it was it was interesting that night to say the least. Uh, but then, more recently, you know, and I think providentially, it's been more stable. We, you know, we've had the three kids that we've had now for uh, a while. You know, two and a half to one and a half years, um, and uh, that, their case is moving more towards adoption. So, so the uh, it, that's allowed us to kind of get a little deeper and experience more, you know, character growth and and uh, a deeper relationship with the kids. So we've really enjoyed that. And hopefully take it to the end where you're not handing them off to someone else to finish to the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, we, we went into it ultimately, excuse me, ultimately the, the goal with foster care is to reunite the family if at all possible. You know, there's a lot of benefit, even if your family is like not great, the, the biological parents do offer a lot of benefits that we could never, you know, as a foster family. Um, and so initially that's always the goal is to get the kid back to their family. Um, and in some cases it doesn't, doesn't work out for one reason or another. And, um, we were happy to be able to, uh, be free, you know, be willing in either case to, to see the case out, uh, whichever way it went. And, uh, it's been really exciting to watch the kids that we've had go back to their families. Uh, we, unfortunately, we've also seen a lot of kids go into higher levels of care than the foster system can provide. Um, and then, like I said, with um, some of the ones we have recently, they you know are staying with us for a little bit longer. Uh, but it's it's been neat to to be in little pieces of each of their lives. Did you have any people in your life that were examples to follow in this foster, or were you kind of on your own within your circles of people that you knew? Yeah, that's a great question. We ha- we had we were stationed in uh, Miami previous to this, and in our church down there, there was a, a large adoption ministry and several people that fostered there as well. My wife has a lot of cousins that were adopted, um, and so she had seen that piece. And unbeknownst to me at the time, was kind of thinking towards um, adoption as as a way of building a family rather than birthing kids. Um, and I think we'll probably end up talking more about it later on. But that's uh, kind of something that resonates me, or one thing that resonates with me is living life by uh, design and not by default. And and so when we brought up the kid discussion 
you know, we, it was kind of like laying out all the, the options on the table, how, you know, different ways that we can build a family and watching the examples, like you mentioned at our uh, church was pretty powerful seeing people that were uh, purposely like entering into brokenness, entering into a service, um, working out the whole, like going through the adoption process, um, which is kind of a, it's a, it's a big picture in the Christian faith is, you know, our, our identity is uh, adopted into God's family. Um, and so it was really encouraging to see that in other people's lives. And we, we felt like that had, not that it's not meaningful to have your own kids. Like certainly there's a ton of beauty in that. And we really appreciate the solid backgrounds that we came from. Um, but to watch the, these people go an extra mile and doing things they didn't have to do. Uh, mm. reaching into Expanded their lives. heart beyond their own awareness even. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, and, that was a, that was a big eye opener for us to, to see that and something we wanted to mimic. And when you, I think when uh, parents that do this with the foster system, you, you think you have a, a certain size heart that you can cape, cope with with life. But I feel like when you gravitate to those situations where those foster kids are coming from, your perspective on life, the size of your heart to be able to cope with what your those childs are coming in with grows. And you learn to almost probably live more a more abundant life because you, you, you see a wider view of the bottom yeah. of, of life. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think that there, there's... You know, both my wife and I come from pr pretty privileged backgrounds, and I say that just in terms of the fact that we both have, uh, you know, loving families that with parents that are still together, and and extended families that we enjoy being with. You know, I'm not uh, that's saying a lot. That's more than any of these kids have. You know, if you end up in the foster system um, as a kid, it's because you know your the the government is saying your your parents are not capable of housing you. You don't have any friends that have stepped up in the local area. Um, and you don't not have any extended family that can take you, you know, so these kids are really, you know, way out there alone. And uh, it's been crazy thinking about the situations they're coming from, you know, getting to know a little bit about the cases and, and um, the families and realizing there's kind of a whole, you know, it's, it's a whole different sphere of life that you, you might run into these kind of people at the gas station or the grocery store, but you, you really don't understand like how they uh, live, like the, just the lifestyle until you know, you're forced into it um, through the interaction in the system. I've been in the, the group that we met with the dad's edge for over three years now. And I feel like being surrounded with like-minded men in that group has almost conditioned me to accept that's my reality. And I get really comfortable with being able to have dads at the same level and quality of conversation. And there are those times where you run into someone and you're like, Whoa, it's just a, like you, you, the, just wake up a little bit because you're, you shelter yourself from those types of people a lot and you're mentally and you just don't aren't in those circles. And when you do run into them, you just get a kind of a slap in the face. Like this still exists out there and you need to be a member of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of it is cyclical too. Right. And, and I think that was a little bit of my motivation getting into fostering um, was to, in order to break the site, the poverty cycle of people that didn't have a dad, didn't know any better. Um, and so end up, you know, winding up doing the same thing their parents did, you know, some of the kids that we've had are fourth generation foster kids, you know, and it's incredible that for, you know, whatever that is, 80 or hundred years that they're, you know, they've just been bouncing along, not being raised properly and they, they don't know any better. So as soon as they're out of the system, they're, you know, producing more kids, it'll just go back into the system. It reminds me of when I, um, was designing this podcast, I was trying to write an avatar and part of that avatar was finding and helping the dad that wants to break the cycle, but maybe doesn't know how. And I feel the pressure that military families are under while they're active duty and having the resources there aren't enough. And it just creates these chains of more broken families within the military and these stigmas and dogmas of what it's like to raise a family that that was one of the part of my mission was to help, break that, that cycle of broken families and to get dads to realize that you can have everything you want right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I think that, um, even in listening to past episodes from your podcast and the situations that guys are coming from there, uh, I feel like, you know, incredibly privileged again, just to be in the situation I'm in where I can, it's much easier for me, me to be home and there's very, you know, far fewer challenges to that family concept that I've had to work through. There is a, 
another part where I can imagine that coming being so close and coming home and having a slight routine, you, you, you remind me of my neighbor who was a firefighter where he was 24 on, 24 off for three days, and then he had three days off. That still takes a toll on your family that your, your kids get used to being you a 50% dad. And what does, uh, leads us to our first question we always ask dads, what does it mean for you to come home to your family when you know that you're not always there every day, like other dads, or maybe a civilian dad is, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I think, um, and just to kind of put it in a little bit of a comical perspective, coming home for me, um, a couple of years ago, two summers ago, I went to an Air Force course, um, and I was getting all prepped. It was going to be one of the longest times I'd been away from the family to date, um, and, you know, putting different uh, tools in place that, you know, my wife could have some support while I was gone. And I get to the course, uh, it, w- it was a 15 day course um, out in Oklahoma, got there and another Air Force guy had showed up, he had road trip 26 hours with his family of three kids under the age of four, in order to spend the middle weekend together with him, because he was gone so often from home that they thought it was worth driving the 26 hours to be together. And the fact that that was, to me, was the longest I'd ever been away from my family and he was making such a great effort to be with his family was um, kind of a shocker. Um, but I think in terms of, and also just to, to also say like, in terms of coming home, like that was certainly my 20 year old self coming out of the Coast Guard Academy realized that being home and the family concept was, uh, you know, one of my core values, if you will, or something that was super important to me. Um, and that's kind of what got me into aviation was not the love of flying per se, but more, uh, the stable schedule, the longer tours of duty coming home, you know, nearly nightly to be back with the family. Um, so in terms of the boat life and the coast guard or aviation life, aviation had a better chance of, of being around to be with the family. That's still something that, um, you know, when I, when I do have the overnight duties, the, the little boys especially are always bummed out when they find out I got duty because I'm not going to be tucking them in at night. Um, and we'll try to, you know, do the typical, you know, connect over uh, a video call or something to, to um, just make them aware of them there. And we use that kind of as a coping strategy for them too. And, you know, again, we're super blessed that I'm always pretty much within cell phone service. Um, so if they're having a rough time, they can give me a call. And uh, especially you know, the younger kids that are dealing with some anxiety, just having, having a, the dad around is really helpful. And so when I'm at work for the 24 hour shift, uh, it can be tougher for them. Um, but just being a phone call away has been super helpful. When you come home for the first time and you enter the house, what does your routine look like? Uh, usually it's, uh, I try to, I, I took a cue from one of your past uh, podcast guests about kissing the wife first. So I try to make a beeline for her. Usually I love that little... advice when I heard it for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something I thought about a lot. lot never really, really made, uh, made it um, an effort to do it, but we're trying to do it some more now. Um, but usually I've got the two little buds are jumping on me, you know, hugging and wanting to do stuff right away. Um, so that I've been working on, you know, kind of, and I think another one of your guests had mentioned like the mental preparation on the way home, you know, switching gears from the work to the home mindset and trying to be present as soon as you walk in the door. Um, but that's usually what it is. You know, usually my wife, especially coming off the summer here, my wife has been ha- having the kids all day long at home, entertaining them and they can be uh, a handful. So trying to take that over, give her some relief so she can get, knock out the chores that she's got to do. Um, and unfortunately for us, the, the kids that we have now go, usually go down pretty early. Um, and that gives me some time with her after they're, they're down for the night. What's early? Because I feel like I'm spoiled when our kids go to bed at 7.30. Everybody looks at me like, really? They go to bed at 7.30? Like, yeah. yeah, they've been going to bed at 7.30 for like all their life almost. Yeah, yeah. And ours, ours go down at 7 is our bedtime. And sometimes if we're going on a date night, like this, this past weekend, we put them down at 6.15. Um, and they're five and seven. And then the teen girl obviously goes down later than that, but she, uh, she's good at managing her own schedule at night. That's good. I've always, uh, people, t- I always tell people they're a bit in bed by seven 30 and we usually have like an hour and a half t- to ourselves before we go to bed, me and my wife. And people are like, how do you do that? And I'm like, I don't know. You just put the butt, put them to bed. And I, yeah. hear, I hear twins that like, I've heard a case. I was talking to a dad. He had twins and they were like four years old. And it was 9.30 and I was talking to him and they were running around in the background. I'm like, oh my gosh, those kids are going to be broken in the morning. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and I, I think a lot of ours too, you know, they're coming from some crazy situations and I, I don't even know if this is physiologically possible, but it really feels like they have a sleep deficit, you know, that they, um, especially the little kids can just sleep forever. Um, and it makes such, I mean, the sleep and their diet, like not, not eating processed food makes such a huge difference in their behavior. Um, and it's really one of the main ways that we can, uh, continue to, like you, you see immediate progress when they, when they get good sleep, when they eat good food, you see an instant change in the character. Um, that's such an encouragement, you know, that we're doing them good, uh, to give them that much sleep and, and a good diet. And seeing some immediate results help you in, in the hard moments that you're like, we are doing good things. We just got, these are certain other areas, but if everything's looking bad, then it's, I'm sure it can be looking very hopeless as well. Yeah. Yeah. I want to circle back to something you you uh, pointed out that that dad you met in Oklahoma. I, we just had Ashley uh, buggy on the episode last week and her husband died on a, a submarine accident or not a submarine accident. He was on a scuba diving accident, but he was a submariner. And they lived life without a bucket list. And she was talking about the same similar idea. Like he would, they were in Hawaii and he would get uh, temporary assigned for like three weeks in Japan and they would go with him. And that was just what they did. And they would always go wherever he went and they would always try to engineer as much as possible to, to do things together, even if it was a, a duty. And it's only, you're, this is only the second time I've heard it mentioned on the podcast, but it's almost like one of the, probably the, the best military active duty family hacks I've heard that everybody kind of treats active duty and those TAD assignments as just separation. And it's just like going to war, but really it's just an opportunity to get creative, to be together. Just like that. Yeah. Guy. It's probably the I, huge miss under huge missed out opportunity to enhance your family while still achieving the mission. Yeah. And I, I haven't had a lot of opportunities for that personally there were a couple of times where and again our, our when i was stationed in miami our deployments you know air quotes deployments were to puerto rico for two weeks um and so i, I had flown my wife down a couple of times and joined me there that was pre-kid so easier to work in but um but yeah if it's if it's possible certainly you know it's a great opportunity i'll have to start repeating that advice more often because i do feel like that is just a good opportunity, especially if the kids are young enough, they're not, maybe not in school or maybe you homeschool them, or maybe it's an opportunity to homeschool them so that your life can be more mobile and school and life can go wherever your deployment goes. And it's not so much your wife figuring out how to raise a family by herself. It's still something you do together, just in a different state. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We have to peel that one back more on the onion a little bit. Uh, I want to dive into a little bit about your how you grew through being a foster parent. What's a lesson that you didn't expect to learn that you have learned throughout the process? Hmm. Lesson that I didn't expect to learn, I guess. And that, so I'm obviously coming at this from a foster father perspective, not having bi biological kids, but I would imagine it's the same experience that a biological father would feel. Um, I didn't expect to be so unprepared for fatherhood and so kind of kind of like at a loss for how to handle situations um going into it you know again as as a like with an engineering mind as a male as a military pilot you know I, i'm like super logical about things if you identify the Systematical, problem yeah exactly you work towards the solution yeah exactly you remove and the emotion so, yep yeah, de yeah definitely and so you walk into these situations with the kids or at least you know I'm, I'm in foster care training and they're describing scenarios um and it's really easy to you know kind of cross your arms and sit back and be like well i know the 10 logical steps to fix these, all these problems i should be fine um and then you get into it you know you, you get thrown into your first uh parenting challenge and you're like man logic just does not work in these that, situations that book i read stinks doesn't work yeah <laughs> i just did the um, 10 steps and it failed yeah yeah exactly um, and so really, I mean, um, it's been a great lesson in, um, in like humility, you know, and, and not resting in the strengths that I thought I was going to be able to use in, in this effort, you know, and, and kind of push me to become more of a student of fatherhood instead of like feeling, you know, walking in like, oh, like I had, um, good examples from my dad and I've had good examples from all these other guys in my life and I should be able to knock this one out of the park. Um, but instead it's just a, like a, a lifestyle of, of trying to figure out, you know, what the, you know, just like 
um, just constantly working towards relational expertise with, you know, in all these different relationships. Mm-hmm. I, it's definitely the same for uh, paternal dads where you have your own kids. And I would say it probably hits you a little bit more because like you're holding this infant in your hands in that first few moments. And I think it happened to me because our first one was a girl. So that those feelings of like, she's going to expect a lot out of me that I have no idea how to provide those moments are the ones that hit you the hardest, I think off the bat. And as you start having more kids, I feel like you, it, you're just getting, learning to ride bigger and bigger bikes and they all take just different skill levels, but they're all set of the same skills, just tweaked slightly different. But at the same time, I often will tell my daughter that I was like, you know how you're trying to figure out seven? Well, daddy's still trying to figure out 34. And I remember there was a time when my daughter was going to ballet and she was super frustrated. She was the youngest person in the class and she was just super frustrated that she was getting picked on because the teacher was trying to help her. It wasn't being picked on, but she was the one that needed the most help and she was just super defeated. And I was like, when you just start out, you're not going to be good at something. When I was first, you were first born, I didn't know anything. I wasn't good at being a dad, but I couldn't give up. I had to keep going and getting practice and the dad you know today was built over the last seven years of failure and successes and you're going to have to go through that. And I've used that example to help her. She eventually did go through maybe like five more classes, but then she realized that it wasn't what she wanted. She's actually now in gymnastics, but learning to get through that suck, even podcasting has the same part. Like there's just going to be a point where it's the scariest thing in your life, turning the microphone on. You just got to keep swimming as Dory says, and you'll eventually get through it. And on the other side, you'll, be people they look up to, but at the same time, you got to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually just, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, like learning how to be seven, learn, learn how to be 34. I was having the exact same discussion with our, our teen on a, like a daddy daughter date uh, this past uh, week. And we brought that up. And uh, one of the questions I always ask her on the, uh, when I take her out is um, what could I be doing to be a better dad? And, you know, she, she gave, uh, a pretty good answer. And then turned around right after that. And she said, um, I've never really had a dad. So I don't know how, you know, I don't really know how to give you better advice. And that gave me, I was like, well, you know, and we had just talked about how how she had been learning how to be a teen. I'm still learning how to be a dad. And that's why I'm asking her these questions. Um, and that was pretty eye opening too, that, you know, even just being present for the kids, like, like being in the house with them is like such a substantial improvement over what they were used to. Yeah, you just showing up and yeah. not yelling, you already a superhero. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's uh it's easy to to you know to pass the class, you know, to get getting the better grades is still a stretch, but um but yeah, just showing up is um what they need right now. Do you ever ask her what she wishes you did more of? Um it's actually the, used with my younger kids or even my kids now at the, at the age I always ask, what do you wish daddy did more of with you? to because it's usually the stupidest simplest thing that you're overlooking that they just want more of and it's super simple win because you just do what they want and bam you're back to being their number one yeah yeah i haven't asked that question uh that way that would be a good way to to spin it takes a lot of the anxiety off being a dad because then it's not on you to plan everything all you gotta do is just do what they want more of and they'll love you more right it's yeah. not the big water park. It's not all these crazy ventures and, and uh, field trips and uh, vacations. Like my, I remember one specific time I asked my, my, my son this. I was like, what do you want to do this weekend tomorrow, Dylan? And he's like, I want to go mall walking. Uh-huh. And mall walking is just going before it opens when all the old people are walking around. And we just walk from one end to the other. We get a pretzel and an orange Julius on the other end. And they have some rides that they all ride. And then we go. And literally, I can't tell you how many times a week, even in the summer, all the time, daddy, let's go mall walking. Yeah. That is the simplest thing. And I, I don't even, I think it was just rainy and cold one time. And I was like, or actually, I don't think I invented it. I think I, we were going to go to Kohl's. And I was like, I'm going to park on the other side of the mall to make them walk. So then burn some energy. Things logical. It's going to make them more tired later on. And it'll just be better. Then they absolutely loved it. And then we just, I kind of uh, leaned into it more. And then eventually we just started calling it mall walking. And now it is literally the one thing that they'll ask. And it's not, sometimes it'll be the library. Like, hey, can we go to the library? And I'm like, yeah, we can go to the library. Yeah, that's awesome. 
What's something that in your relationship with your wife that's grown as being a foster parent? I think um, having the presence of kids adds a whole bunch of facets to your relationship that you don't really know about. You know, uh, an author I really like is C.S. Lewis, and he in his book The Four Loves he talks about uh, friendship, and you know, you have person A and B, and they can get to know each other pretty well. But it's not until person C shows up that the, that A begins to see more of B, and B begins to see more of A because person C has drawn it out in them. Um, and so in the same way, I think having the kids, um, in the house helps me see a lot more of my wife's like, uh, loving care for them and selfless service that she, you know, um, dedicates so much time and, and, uh, mental effort into, into the, the enterprise. Um, it's been really cool seeing how, you know, I think my wife is, is specifically gifted for fostering, um, and, deeply cares about the kids. You know, she's really involved in the, the legal aspects of the cases, uh, you know, working with the, the biological families to connect as much as we can, as much as we're allowed to, you know, in each individual case, um, researching the issues that the kids are having. Uh, you know, it's just, it, she, my wife was, she was a high school biology teacher before we uh, like after we got married and before we had kids. Um, and she was good at that, but it's cool to see her like really, um, coming out and, you know, and and being like super passionate about the calling that, that we're engaged in right now. I like that. And it sounds like you've almost deepened your intimacy or that, that raw connection to the person that she was, that maybe the person when you're dating was still, like you said, was someone that you found love. But then when, the when it started getting into motion, like you really just fell more and more in love with what when she was even on the inside more. Yeah, exactly. And not to say there's not challenges. I mean, that obviously as, as you and every other dad knows that like kids like generate more challenges relationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that we find every you know, hole in your personality that you have, and <laughs> they push yeah. that button over and over, whatever you're not good at, they'll yep. find a way to be that person. Yeah, exactly. And they'll make it hard to do date nights and fun vacations and all these other ways that, you know, you, you should be connecting, um, outside of that. But, um, you know, so we have our challenges as well, but, but, you know, like I said, it's been cool to watch her, um, just the passion energy and the giftings that she's displayed. Do you think once the adoption goes through that you'll be done fostering or do you still feel like you'll still find a way to make it happen? Yeah. I think even if we end up adopting, um, these kids or other kids, or, um, I think that, to in some capacity will be involved with it for a while. Um, there's for, you know, if, if you're not super familiar with foster care, you may not know that there's uh, three different basic methods of doing it. There's the permanent placement, which is what we have, um, where, you know, where kids are, are put in your house, uh, until their, the parents plan is complete. Um, there's also, uh, respite care, foster family that's just out of town for some reason and then emergency placement is like you know no kidding the kid was just pulled out of the home today still got the cigarette burns on their arms or the bruises on their face or whatever the issue is just you know a mess of snot and tears and they just need a place for like the night until they get a permanent placement so um both respite care and emergency placement you can do on a much more short-term basis like a lower commitment level uh than permanent placement so we'll probably consider that um, and I think also just being, um, I, I, I think being a voice for foster care in general, you know, encouraging other people to engage in it because it's, it's a really, um, underserved segment of society that people are just not aware of. Um, and, and I think my wife and I could really shine a spotlight in the communities that we're a part of on the importance of engaging in, in the ministry and, um, I think that would be a way that we'd still be involved with in foster care without necessarily having kids placed in the house, if that makes sense. It does. And I was also thinking as you were describing that I was thinking about that for a child that may actually not know whether love actually exists in the world, that that gift that you give them, do you have any insights to where you think their lives are going to take knowing that someone believes in them, that you, you saved them essentially? Yeah, I think um, that that's an interesting question. I, I I really do believe, you know, as as a Christian, that 
um, God calls himself a father to the fatherless. And it's like an honor to, for me to call myself a father um, in the same way. Uh, I, I hope that in the, in the love that the kids feel from us, that, that, we, that they're also seeing the love from their Heavenly Father. Um, and like I talked about, like, like our goal or, you know, kind of a, a secondary goal for us is to break that poverty cycle. Um, and I don't think that some of the kids appreciate, um, or, or that they just, they're not quite mature enough to understand what that means, you know, and, and one of our family mantras is hard work pays off. And if they only see the hard work part of it and they don't get the pays off part, um, they can be kind of turned off to that message. So that's where, again, with the three kids that we've had recently that have been with us for a longer amount of time, it's more, and not to say that the shorter placements haven't seen this as well, but it, it's more satisfying for me personally to have a longer time to, to send that message through like, Hey, we're, you know, like we're here for you. We're loving you. Um, we're going to work hard for you. We expect, you know, kind of some hard work and development uh, from you as well. Um, and hopefully that's what they're going to walk away from our house feeling is like, here's a family that really cares about me in a deep way. They're not just providing for my immediate needs and um, housing me until my time is up. Um, but, you know, here's a resource, here's a kind of a lifestyle that they can mimic, if, we, if you will, to um, kind of step out of that poverty cycle. I like that. And I've often heard said that uh, flowers grow from dirt and you put shit on dirt to make a flower grow better. And so you have to wonder, and you think about any of the people that have had extreme adversity, even Oprah Winfrey, her adversary story, all these people came from nothing and just some of the worst stories you can imagine, but they actually were the phoenixes that rose from those ashes to be people that everybody looks up to. And you have to wonder the gift that you're giving, what that, what those scars in their heart, but then also knowing that their heart was refilled, what that will take them into the world to do and to believe is possible for themselves. Yeah. Well, and also you could, you know, it, it enables you to have or to live with much more gratitude when you know what it, what could have been. Right. And yeah, when and you've been you at the now. bottom, you really only have one way to go up. And if you know, people believe in you to make, help you get there and be successful, it'll happen. Yeah. So having lived listened to the podcast a little bit, I can imagine you've heard me talk probably about legacy. What do you think your legacy will be? I think, um, generally speaking, so you're, you're, you're twisting the question a little bit. You're asking, what do you think it will be instead of what I want it to be? Is that what I'm hearing? It could be either or when, when you hear the right. word legacy, what, do you, what, what uh, chimes in your head for your life, what you want it to be, where you'd want it to go, where your effort goes to try to create that legacy. Yeah. Okay. What we, so what my, Mandy and I would, would see as our desired legacy would be, you know, again, to go to go to scripture and, and get the well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our life that we've used, um, that we've stepped up to our calling and live selflessly in general. Um, specifically it's, you know, it's engaging in the moment, um, in each of these kids' lives, whether they're with us for a day, a month, a year, you know, until they're 18, whatever it is. Um, we would love to, you know, have funerals that were attended by dozens of kids that lived in our house that, you know, that their future slightly changed, you know, maybe they didn't come out of poverty, but they at least got to see what you know, a stable family life was like for a little bit and to know the difference between what they were born into and what could be. Um, and, uh, ha having the, you know, deeper connection. I, I prefer having a deeper connection, having a longer term relationship with some of these kids, but even, uh, some of the kids that we have only lived with us for a month continue to call us. And that's super encouraging to see that it, that they, you know, like we were talking about earlier, got the, you know, felt loved enough that they, they would reach out to us as if we were, um, you know, family in the future and just bounce things off of us. So, so just, um, being known by the, the foster placements and having long-term relationships with them, I think is ultimately the legacy that we're shooting for with this involvement. Did you ever see the movie, the longest ride? I haven't. I didn't go out of my way to see it, but it was on an airplane and I was running out of things to watch. So I watched it and it's a rodeo movie and it's 
kind of a young love story following a older love story that was kind of born from the war. And there is this, uh, the older story, she was a teacher and she kind of like half adopted this kid that had parents, or I think they were like, they're not even real parents, but like half brother and we're just a weird relationship out in North Carolina. And she really only had maybe like two years where he was in the class and she was really into it. And then the parents moved away and she never saw him again. And she ended up dying. And later in the, in the show, someone shows up at his, at the husband's door with a picture and the back is a picture that she gave him, the little boy, the last time she saw him and said, you can be anything you want. And he, she was telling the, the dad that, uh, he ended up going to Oxford and I was just relating it to what you, you really have no idea what that little moment where someone believes in you, but they're going to go out and come back and tell you later on that you did. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. When you show up to be that kindness in a world full of darkness or that light in a world full of darkness, you can really move mountains in a way that the average mom and dad can only hope for. It's like, I feel like it, in your world, it's you really are planting seeds that you never get to see grow. And that's the best way I've heard legacy explained is planting seeds in a garden that you never actually get to see grow. And those will definitely start making dents in the universe in ways that you have no idea until later on, or you find in some random case where someone comes back and says, thank you for being my dad, even if it was only for a week. Yeah. I would, I would lose it if that happened. I would absolutely just ball my eyes out when that happens. Yeah. It'd be incredible. Cause it would just be an overwhelming emotional feeling of everything you put through and it'll probably be on a day where you were doubting yourself and you're just like, it'll breathe more life into you than you can, you can handle. And, when you're, how many more years do you have in the Coast Guard? Uh, depends. I'm, I'm, I have three more years of commitment left. Um, and as you probably know, airline pilots are in demand on the outside. Um, but I've, I've been in for 10. Are you at the stage where you can go right to a major carrier, or do you still have to play the regional game and go regional the major? Yeah, no, I, I, have, a, the, I have a pretty solid resume at this point. I could, I could walk into almost anywhere, I think. That's good. Do you see your effort or how you live your life changing? Like, do you guys have an idea of how you want to change your life more than just being a pilot? Yeah, I think, and again, you know, kind of, I, I didn't get too deep into it, but I, I got into aviation not because of a passion for flying, but more because of the lifestyle. Um, and so I totally think that after the Coast Guard, there's a high chance um, that, I, that I may not fly. I'll go, go into something that, affords me the kind of flexible schedule that I can be, um, you know, with my wife a lot and be doing a ministry that we care about. Um, so whether that's, you know, here or overseas, uh, I really don't know what it would be. Um, but that's certainly a major, uh, life goal of ours is to be financially independent to the point where we can, you know, let our passion drive our, um, our daily activities rather than, you know, chasing a paycheck. I like that. You kind of remind me of uh, some future John Travolta. They own his uh, own airplane in Florida and he has his own airport and he lands at his house and he parks it in his uh, garage, his house and walks into his house. Yeah, that would be cool. Although I just saw he donated his major uh, Boeing 707 to uh, Qantas. So he no longer has a bigger airplane, but he still has few airplanes to hold on to. Yeah, I'm sure that's plenty of fun. So you're saying you would be able to say goodbye to air aviation if, if you found the right way to live? I think so. Yeah. I, I certainly enjoy every time I go up, um, for sure. But at, at a certain point, it's kind of just like driving a car. Yeah. I, I can imagine even with the regional carriers, um, maybe if you're in my, more in my category where like, I just, I can, my favorite office is at, uh, been a few times where I've messed up at the airport and had to stay the whole day there and I'll get a, uh, an admiral's pass or a United clubs pass. And I'll go up on top and watch the airplanes take off. Like that's the best day at the office for me. Like yeah. just watching all these massive airplanes at O'Hare take off and land. Like, I don't know if I would ever get tired of that. Like to me, the best part of travel is just being on an airplane. And I loved all, I think it's the adventure. I think it's the Every time an airplane flies over, I'm always looking it up on my phone to see where it's going, where it came from, how old is it. And I think it's like the freedom that comes with the airplane. Like literally when you're in this guy, 
the FFA says you can't go anywhere, but you literally could go anywhere. And just that freedom that you have to be that, uh, to be in control of that. And I think there's something related to how we want to live our life with that freedom that you probably get in the air. Like there's just the road sees, sees limitless because there are no roads. You can literally go anywhere you want. And I think that's the, the enchantment that I have with, with flying. Yeah. And I'm I sure think there's the, other ways that you can see it. There's just the default view of flying and that there's so many different views of the same job that people just don't understand. And you probably just need to get a wider view of the airline industry to figure out a different way to fit into it and serve and match your, even if it's flying relief supplies to Central America. Sure. Yeah. I've thought about that too. I've done, I've done a, a number of uh, missions trips to like a, like Bush pilot, you know, kind of agencies down in South America and my qualifications don't really translate very well into some of those, or at least the, the places that I visited. Do you need qualifications? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's actually kind of rigorous actually. Um, Interesting. The, the, yeah. Um, but again, the, the, I, I'm, I've been flying bigger planes, like ATP style um, aircraft instead of single engine, you know, float planes out in the jungle. Um, and so I would need to, do a lot of training to get into something like that. And I could see you probably as well, just uh, finding a place where you know that love is needed, either maybe even in Africa or Central America and South America and being one of those people on international house hunters that just moves everything down there and that creates their life and they figure out a way to make it happen. And that's the way they live their freedom. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely one option on the, the board um, for us right now. I think something that that my wife and I have found again, kind of through this involvement and the need of a tribe to raise kids is just the value of community. And so while we want to engage in travel and that's something that we enjoy, um, the flip side of travel is that it's, you know, at least from our, our, our perspective is not, you know, well-traveled people at this point, but um, it's harder to build a community, you know, and to be, have r relational friction with other people um, and to have them, you know, speaking into your life and, and holding you accountable for the improvements that you want to make in your life. Um, and so that's really one of the, our, our key goals for post Coast Guard. And once we have stopped moving around, um, is to settle down, not necessarily put down roots, but um, to develop, develop relationships with, with people deeply. Did you listen to the Kirby Ingalls episode? Um, I did. I cannot place the uh, what was talked about on that episode. Well, we, he brought up the topic of moving around because I think he's at like 22 years, maybe 18. It might be overrounding for him. But he talked about moving around and he has five kids and I hadn't really thought about it, but my wife was Air Force as well. And there's something about having your roots constantly moved that doesn't allow your memories to sink in very far. And I think some portion of your memory um, are forgotten because you don't have those things that you constantly revi revisit. And so I, like my family farm where I grew up on is 30 minutes from here and I can revisit almost every memory I had as a childhood and poof, there's something physically there that could trigger that. And when you move from place to place, most active duty families don't spend hardly any time building any roots other than what's in their neighborhood or what's in their military community that's surrounding them in the media block. And because they know it's going to let, but go away. But at the same time, I think it's just more about being intentional with your community. But I think that's an important lesson that I've learned throughout interviewing for especially active duty is that despite moving around, it's super important to build that community, mainly for your kids, because they still need to know something called home. Yeah. And even if home does move, they need to know what that feeling feels like. And then it needs to be a consistent feeling filled with consistent actions to recreate it. Yeah, definitely. Because otherwise I think everything just gets fractured and they just, I think the confidence in who they are might also be harder to build just because you, you don't have that sequential series of things happening in your life that started from one point in your memory and started to another. And I think some, uh, my wife often talks about like, she only remembers the last active duty station that she had. Everything else is kind of, she remembers it maybe if her mom mentioned it a couple of times or lots of times where a picture triggers it, but most of it is just forgotten memories. Hmm. Wow. So you're onto something there with the community. And I think it's a lesson for every dad to make sure that they learn to build roots in the community they have and to 
just make sure their kids know what that feeling feels like of community, whether it be church or whether it just be connected with groups, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, um, just getting out into the community and doing things besides yeah. going to Target. Target yeah. doesn't count as community. Even yeah. though it has a similar feeling and even though it's around the country, it's still not community that's going to make your memory stick. Correct. If anything, it's yeah. going to make your memory to buying things is happy or buying things to make you happy, which isn't a memory that serves you very well. Yeah, exactly. No, I think, yeah, I think it has to be, I think deep community is super important. It has, there has to be like actual friction there where someone like knows kind of, you know, can get behind your facade and knows you for who you really are, you know? And uh, when you get that kind of honesty and relationship, that's where I think the connectedness helps you feel, you know, a, a part of the community rather than just like, you know, showing up to an event kind of deal. Mm -hmm. So as you, we wrap up this episode, when you think about your time as a dad, what's a parting piece of advice you want to leave for dads, either someone maybe thinking about fostering or even just dadhood in general that you've learned in the almost instantaneous world of the internet, you've downloaded being a dad in instant when some, a kid showed up at your door and you had to be a dad to whatever age was there. Yeah. I think, you know, that, like I mentioned before that kind of, the thing that got us into or part of the part of what got us into foster care originally was that whole um, desire to live by design and not by default, you know, to, to do things intentionally. Um, I think being intentional in life is an iterative process or continuous loop. So you identify, you know, based on the inputs I have now, these are the actions I'm going to take and you take the actions and then you are constantly analyzing if the actions are having a desired effect in your life. Um, and you go from there. Um, and I think in order to live intentionally, you need to have a firm grasp of what your worldview is and what your core values are, if you will. Um, and so not only knowing like the origin or knowing what you believe the origin, destiny and meaning and morality of life come from, um, but also what makes you come alive, you know, of all the virtues that we should espouse, what are the ones that are meaningful to me? Um, and I think, you know, a way that we've seen intentionality in foster care is, um, you know, the idea of saying no and yes to different involvements, you know, or, or when your kid comes and asks you to do something, no and yes to that. Uh, when you say no, you're just saying no to one thing. When you say yes, you're saying no to a lot of things. And you, so you really need to be very careful with what you say yes to. Um, you know, if we have the three kids at our house and I, I've got a wife and I've got a dog and I've got a house to take care of and DHR calls me to say, hey, I have another kid that needs a house for, you know, a week. Can you put them up? Um, by saying yes to DHR, I'm saying no to spending time with the little buds after work. I'm saying no to extra time with my wife after the boys are down. I'm saying no to mowing the yard that, you know, is, is overgrown at this point. Um, it's, it's no to a lot of things in order to do that one yes. Um, and so you need to very carefully figure out, you know, how, how your actions are um, aligning with your core values and your worldview. Um, and one of the, one of the best uh, analogies I've heard of, of living an intentional life um, comes from uh, one of my favorite blogs. And I, I kind of have used this a lot, especially with the kids, you know, cause I think living intentionally is important, not, you know, for anyone, not just parents, dads, but also for kids. Um, but the idea of life as a conveyor belt um, and your, your current and your past self are throwing boxes onto the conveyor belt that your, your future self is forced to unload um, and your future self, is praying that those boxes are full of workouts and healthy meals and relational investment and prudent financial decisions and education or personal development and not TV dinners and hours on Facebook and, you know, TV show trivia and squandered time with family. Um, and so it's incumbent on, you know, you and me and the listeners and everyone right now to be doing things now um, to make life easier in the future. You know, the hard choice now makes life easier in the future. The easy choice now makes life harder in the future. Um, so just living with intentionality, make, you know, making the best use of your time. Time is the most valuable thing that we have. Um, and we need to use it wisely. I've never heard that in a conveyor belt analogy. And I, I love analogies because they really help frame things that don't always, they seem very, very abstract. Reminds me of my own analogy that I had for uh, Netflix and waking up in the morning that, or even just if you, even when you're young and you're, uh, there's a nighttime guy that thinks it's great to stay up, binge watch Netflix. And that same time, nighttime guy is always fucking over morning time guy. 
and there's nothing you can do about it. And the morning time guy just always has to pick up the pieces, always clean up the beer bottles if, if he had a party. And he just is there to, and he hopes every night the nighttime guy makes the right choices. So I don't have to do this, but yet nighttime guy, I always, and I've had it many times where you get sucked into Netflix. Maybe it just happened this past week. I was watching something till midnight. And I was like, I should not be up, but I was just like, I'm going to do it. And then needless to say, even just yesterday, I was dragging really bad because nighttime guy on Wednesday decided to stay up till midnight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, this summer I've actually started a new morning routine and it was shocking to see how much more important the nighttime was routine or that, sorry, the nighttime routine was in accomplishing what I wanted to do in the early morning. Oh yeah. Um, if I'm not in bed by nine 30 morning time guy feels it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, uh, it's intentionality on both sides of that equation that even when you're trying to just breathe and relax, there still has to be intentionality because at some point life's going to come back and you need to jump onto it again. And when I started going to gym at 5 a.m. two years ago, that really hit me hard. And at the same time, it was not easy. I'm not a morning guy by any stretch of the imagination. And I had already been waking up a little bit through the American morning exercise for like the previous year. So I was completely foreign to it. But dragging yourself out of the bed at 5 a.m. four days a week to go to the gym is not something that is the easiest thing to do. It'd be easier to wake up and go to read a book or something. So that took a lot of courage. And uh, I've, I'm, success- I'm glad to say that I've, I've stuck to it. It's my time when I go. And I realized something by doing that. Uh, I was doing the most important thing every day. And it was done by 545. And it was the one thing that was going to change every tomorrow. Or the conveyor belt that was putting something better for that guy in the conveyor belt in the future. And... Uh, it's a little bit corny, but I often say it's like my daily deposit in the bank of tomorrow. Like those little things do eventually add up that you put on the conveyor belt and knowing where you say yes to and no to, I even find that important at work. Like I structure my calendar in a certain way that if someone asked me to do something, I instantly know what I'm saying no to if I say yes to it. So that's not such a, sometimes when you say yes, the world is so easy to say, Oh yeah, I could do it. I got time right now. In reality, you don't, and you didn't, fully look at your calendar and you didn't realize your commitments. And I can't tell you how many times I've overcommitted myself with anything happens all the time still. And just takes intentionality to pull out your phone and check your calendar. Be like, Oh no, I can't do that. I got this going on. Right. I like that advice to wrap up with. Well, Luke, this interview has been just as epic as I thought it would be. And I, I look forward to being a continued friend of yours and seeing and growing on your journey with you and hope your adoption goes as well. Um, I just really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day and we'll talk soon, Luke. Thanks, Ben. That's a wrap. And thank you for listening to today's show. And I really hope you enjoyed it. The lifeblood of any new podcast are the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And you will help us get the message out to even more military veteran dads. As John Maxwell says, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. Dads, it's time to come home.